After 25 years in the fashion industry, I've realized that fashion is not really about the clothes, it's about the people. I'm Laura Van Root Poole, and this is What We Wore. Meeting Marie Helena Tayak and seeing her work is a bit of a spiritual experience. Her essence and her stones have a dreamy quality that transport you to a different realm. I hope you enjoy this archival episode of her unique story and tune back in next week for a new episode where we discuss the magic of stones. Marie Linda Tayak, I am so excited that you're here and I don't know if you know, but in Charlotte, you've been coming for almost 20 years and you have clients and friends for 20 years here, but every few years, the clients sort of, there's this outcry that, when is Maria Lynn coming back? Can we get Maria Lynn to come back? Everybody just loves to have you here. That's very exciting. I didn't know actually that they were all craving for me, but it's <laughs> so sweet to know. They were, they always are, but it, it's sort of this groundswell every few years that I think this could be the year that she'll come back. And I think that there's, there's nothing like having you sell the jewelry. I mean, you speaking about it and you telling the stories about it is so powerful. Jewelry is my passion. So when I speak about it, I speak about something I love. So I suppose it uh, um, it goes through and, you know, they get excited like I get excited. You know, when I find a new stone, it's always incredible because for me, it's like a treasure hunt. Yeah. And I think for the collectors, the jewelry collectors, it's the same. When they find a piece which I was very excited about, they know it's a treasure hunt and they're going to find something which is so rare. And the beauty about what I do is that everything is kind of one-off yes. because I'm uh, dependent of what, what has been found in, on, in the, on the earth. Mm -hmm. You know, it's incredible to think that the stone that I use, it takes millions of years to produce a beautiful stone. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, someone will walk into my office and show me this amazing thing, that amazing stone, and I get so excited about it. And the clients are the same. You know, they know that if it's come here, it's amazing that it's come here. You know, I, I have a lot of clients in Japan too. And so it could have gone to another place. Yeah. And they want to be the first one to see it because they know they're going to find a, a gem. I don't know that I loved jewelry until I met you. I mean, you changed my entire brain and my entire soul and my entire love for jewelry. You, you made me absolutely adore jewelry. Thank you. <laughs> when I started, I think a lot of the clients uh, I met never wore jewelry. Yeah. And it was before because it didn't fit with our life, I think. Mm -hmm. I think we used to, I mean, we're both fashion people. I love fashion. You love fashion. Yeah. And at the time I started jewelry, it was really minimalist. And there was nothing which would fit with my clothes, you know. Mm. Okay, there were great designers of the 70s, you know, I think of Elsa Peretti, which I love, and Dean Van. And, but nobody had stone. So I, I bought something which was much more, much lighter in a way, much more... Desinvolte, I would say in French, mm. uh, to, to the jewelry business. And maybe that's why the clients who came were people who never even thought of looking at jewelry because it wasn't them. Yeah. I mean, I definitely never saw myself in jewelry until I met you. And also, I'm, I think I'm the first generation where women are confident enough to buy their own jewelry. Which is so unusual. I mean, that, that's a and that's a completely different category than ever existed before, don't you think? Yeah, that, that, that makes a huge difference in the choice. My jewelry is very understated mm. and it's very much a, a personal pleasure. There's no social status attached to my work. Yeah. Um, so it's very much a choice of a person for themselves. I think when men choose jewelry, very uh, often it is to show power. 
Mm. And uh, they want to show that they're very powerful and that their beautiful wife is wearing an amazing piece of jewelry. That, that they the, had this job that could have, you know, could yeah, afford, right? That they could afford, yes, yeah. yes. The clients who wear my work or the husband of the client who wear my work, they understand it's for the pleasure of every day. And when you wear a beautiful stone, I'm going back to the colored stone, which I love so much. Uh, it changes every day. It changes with the, the light, the daylight, the night light, the weather. It connects you constantly back to nature. Mm. I think for me, I always say that the, the, the gemstone are, are the stars uh, of this earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we need, uh, especially in the modern world that we live in, which is so disconnected, we need to be connected to nature. And I, I'm connected to nature when I have flowers. Flowers, you know, mm. flowers. I always say that, that if I have TV or flowers, I watch the flowers. <laughs> uh, bird is another thing. Yeah. And the other thing is a gemstone. And, and this is like an instant spiritual connection and a reminder that we are actually a part of something much bigger and very beautiful. That is really beautiful. I, I understood this from, from a long time. I mean, I've been designing jewelry since 96. And I have many clients who are uh, collectors. And I think they are, uh, they, they, a lot of the time, they think my jewelry brings them good luck. Uh -huh. But it's not to do with my jewelry. It's to do with the fact that uh, the stones are so special. And the stone I choose, I don't choose them because they're perfect. I choose them because they are so alive. Yeah. And um, the, so the collectors have learned to, to choose the same thing. And, and then the collectors themselves charge them into so, what they believe. So I think that's what's happened with the work because it's, it's, one, of, I mean, it's one of a kind. It's, every stone is unique. But okay. I think the stones speak to me. They yeah. do. Uh, it, it's very strange. You see a packet of stone and why you're instantly attracted to one more than another. Yeah. But I also see it with the, 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 the collectors. They, they will see certain amount of stone and there will be one which will be just perfect for them yeah but this is why i did the book i don't know if you remember a long time ago i did with uh, colette when Co yeah. in 2000 mm -hmm. we did something which we called the precious bar mm -hmm. and yes. we had uh, it was downstairs it was and, so beautiful and we had and i had every single possible color of gemstone mm -hmm. and then i had done this little book which i uh, have it <laughs> yeah which um it actually gave the what would you say the properties or the yes. powers of the stone mm -hmm. And uh, it's something that I decided to do because when I knew m my client very well, I knew that they would always choose a stone related to the emotional state. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, it was incredible. Someone who was depressed would choose a smoky quartz, which lifts you mm -hmm. out of depression. Someone who had a different childhood would choose a rose quartz. Mm -hmm. Someone who wanted to get pregnant would be attracted to a flower pole. So every time I had the time to actually, uh, you know, to, to, uh, talk with them and understand what was going on in their private life, I would realize that their choice uh, uh, matches what were their, their emotional states. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do this book and we did this project with Colette. And then to my horror, people did the reverse. They took the book, looked at the power of the stone. And chose that way. And chose that way. Well, in fact, what I found interesting is that instinctively, we know what's going to help us feeling better, uh, feel better. So anyway, so I stop and, and I never talk about <laughs> the power of the stone anymore because I think at the end of the day, people should choose. And, uh, uh -huh. and what's interesting is that they choose what works for them. When I was pregnant with my daughter, you chose the most beautiful, huge emerald that I wore every day for the whole pregnancy. And I, and I don't think I've worn it since she was born. It's, I look at it. It's so beautiful, but it's, not, it's for a different time in my life. And another thing that happened is that I had a spectacular sapphire from you and it was stolen I was 
so heartbroken, devastated. I mean, beyond really like sick. And you changed my mind about that. And you said it wasn't meant for you. It, it wasn't meant to be with you. It's the right thing for it to not be there. Yeah, I learned in Japan uh, from some of my uh, clients that in Japan they say when you lose something is that something bad was supposed to happen to you and uh, you lost something to protect you. And I think that's a beautiful way to see something. When something has to go, it's no longer, it shouldn't have been part of your life yeah. anymore. I think that, I mean, I, I don't miss it. You don't miss it? No, no it was, it was very beautiful. Yeah, it was I think you probably missed it. It was really pretty. I, I still remember the, the storm. It was such a beautiful pale blue. It was very so similar pretty. to your eye. <laughs> but I also think in, it's interesting how in different stages of our life, we, we, are, we want to wear certain colors and certain stones. Mm -hmm. Like I understand what you say about the emerald. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have my phases where you can see me wearing all pink or yeah. I have my blue... <laughs> Blue, I mean, all blue, all pink, all green, all, uh -huh. and it's the same with the jewelry. It, uh, you know, it, it speaks to me. Yeah. I had a phase when I was growing my business where I used to wear diamond. I can't believe that. Yeah. Well, no, I do remember yeah, that. Actually, remember. I mean, yeah, they, they I were rose cut. They were very yes. understated. Yes, they were. But I do remember that. And uh, if you know a little bit about diamond, diamond is a stone which gives you power. Yeah. People of power love to wear diamond. It was like all oh, the kings wore diamond. Uh, I think in France, even the, the royal family was, uh, they were the only one allowed to wear diamonds huh. because, you know, the powers had to stay in their hand. So, the, but now you never see me wearing diamonds. No, it's I haven't like, seen you. No. Uh -uh. It's, not a, it's not an energy. And I, I don't even like working on diamonds because it's so bright when you work on diamonds huh. that it actually, it's difficult to see all the different nuances. And so it makes oh. you quite tired. Interesting. Can we start from the beginning? Will you talk about where you're from and where you grew up? You have a, a very interesting childhood. I was born in Libya uh -huh. in uh, 1964, and I moved uh, very early on to Lebanon. And your father was in the energy business, or he was a diplomat? My father worked for the French government. Yeah. <gasps> So uh, right. so that's why we, we travel and uh, the, we were so we left Libya because of what was going on, Gaddafi coming in power. Sure. And then we moved to Lebanon and a few in the 70s, we had the same problem. We had to leave <laughs> Lebanon. So uh, I think that's also shaped my uh, my childhood to the fact that I uh, had to leave every time a yeah. country. And but uh, so my father was working for the government. And at the time we thought, OK, we thought, do we live in Baghdad? Or Beirut, but my father preferred for us to be in Beirut, which was supposed to be called the Saint Tropez yes. uh, of the East. Well, and Royer was there. I mean, it was. I think it was a lot. Uh, it was a very fun place to be yeah. for for uh, you know for my parents. That's for for sure. <laughs> and first, it was great because we had a. Uh, you can be you can be by the sea, so you can go swimming every day. It's, and and we could be uh, skiing. Yeah. One hour away, you can go skiing. So it's, it was amazing. You can swim in the morning, ski in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. So that's quite exceptional. But um, I have to tell you a little bit about my family. I think I'm quite a, a mixture. My grandmother was Scottish, uh, head of a Scottish clan. I didn't know and, that. And my, f and my, f my grandfather is a descendant of uh, one of the three musketeers, mm -hmm. uh, Portos. Yeah. So, uh, and I come from Gascony, uh, and it's somewhere where I, I love to go. That's where, whenever I need to um, 
you know, rest. I would go to to the, the Gascony. When you were little and you lived in Africa, would you come back in the summers to Gascony? I would come back every summer to the southwest of France, not to Gascony because my when, when my grandfather was alive, we uh, we would make too much noise. We were three girls, <laughs> three and girls and a boy. Yeah, here, yeah. <laughs> very noisy. And I think he he was an older gentleman and he didn't like us to be there, so we would just come and visit. But uh, the day uh, he passed away, quite young, so. My father inherited the, the family house and we would go every summer. I know you have a complicated relationship with living in France. I think mostly because of the light, I think it's hard for you. I, I have a complicated relationship with living with Paris. Yeah, it's interesting, but not so much France. Not, I uh, love the country in France. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I was a smaller and we would be in, in France, for, summer was like a very happy time. We would have a long holiday and I'd be with my other grandmother mm-hmm. on my mother's side, who was a beautiful woman. Yeah. And her mother was also an incredibly elegant woman. Mm-hmm. So I think I learned a lot for, uh, yeah. from them. And we used to fancy dress a lot. <laughs> my older sister, who uh, Sophie, who was... Um, uh, who eventually was come to Garçon uh, Pierre for a long time. When we, when I was age, maybe five, she would organize fashion show. When fashion wasn't so, you know, yeah. Greta Porte was probably just starting, and she would so we would fancy dress with all the beautiful clothes of my grandmother that we trash. When I think <laughs> of it, I'm like so upset. <laughs> They let us play with all the beautiful bias cut uh, Vionnet dresses, but anyway, that was part of learning about fashion. And we would do fashion show, and that was a, that was our big uh, event. Did your mother and grandmother wear jewelry? Um, my grandmother wore a lot of jewelry, mm-hmm. and my mother she had some jewelry from my father's side, and she. Um, what was interesting again growing up in the, you know, in the early seventies is that. People were more creative, mm-hmm. so they would go. She, I mean, my mother would go to her dressmaker, uh, and she would get her dresses made, mm-hmm. which was fun, which you learn uh, in Beirut. And she would be out every night, and she would also go to the jeweler. Mm-hmm. So my one of my first memory of stone is going to the jeweler in Beirut, mm-hmm. where probably my mother was taking a stone out from a ring to get another different ring made more up to her taste, and the jeweler gave me a little sapphire and a little ruby. And I was so excited, and of course I I love them. And then afterwards I lost them right. <laughs> because they were so tiny. But yeah. uh, so that's one of my first memory of jewelry. And the other memory of jewelry that I have is when they went to Iran, and again it was before the revolution. Mm-hmm. So the the treasure of the Shah yeah. of Iran was exhibited at the time, and they brought back all the postcards. Uh, of the jewelry, and I remember every single piece. And uh, and uh, I mean, to this day, if I see a picture from the crown jewels of Iran, I always know where it's from. How interesting! And that probably started my love. That and my mother's mother, my grandmother, who was always really into her jewelry. She would always have like a, she had a big gold bracelet with lots of coins, uh-huh. a coin for every um, place she visited. No, a coin for every year of her. She had five ah. five kids uh-huh. and she had 19 uh, grandchildren. So every kid had a, yeah. Oh, and so, the way it sounded. Yeah. And, and the wind sounded. So for me, jewelry. Because that's one of the first things yeah. I remember about you is your bangles. Yeah. yeah. And the way they sounded. And you had the bell and the mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, sound in jewelry is really important too. So mm-hmm. I could hear my grandmother coming even before she was there because of the bracelet. Exactly. You're one of three girls and a and a brother. All of you are creative, I think. Me and my two older sisters, um, we really grew up together. Mm-hmm. And then by twenty, the age of twenty-five, my mother had three daughters. Mm-hmm. And then for ten years, uh, she, you know, she just. Uh, 
she stopped and then by she was 35 <laughs> she was like oh I would love to have another baby so she had my sister Victoire yeah. and then my brother Pierre yeah. five years later so in fact it's a bit like two family yeah and um, at the time I was uh, we were growing up we were lucky to be um, in Paris and the fashion was very exciting mm -hmm. and my elder sister started working for Kenzo uh, early on but she was more on the PR side And then Gabrielle was working for uh, Willie Ware, Willie Smith, and other oh, brands. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's from uh, South Carolina, I think. Is he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was quite an, uh, incredible. And I went, uh, I was fascinated with Jewry, so I went to L London early on to study English. At I 18? could study, yeah, at uh, 17, 17. I home. To, stu to study, I wanted to study at GI in New York. And of course, I enjoyed uh, London fashion so much that I stayed back for 10 years. You loved London. I mean, I, you had a, you worked for very interesting people. Tell me about that. I was like, so I went to, I had an English course, mm. which of course I hated. I thought the people <laughs> in the class, especially coming from uh, London, uh, I thought, you know, that it was, it was in Victoria and it was really depressing. Mm. And uh, so I met Nikki Butler from Butler Wilson. Yes. And we, we just got talking. And in, within five minutes, he offered me the job. <laughs> and he said he'd never done that uh, to anyone in his, in his lifetime. So I started working at this amazing costume jewelry store mm -hmm. where everyone would come in. We'd have uh, Fade and Away, but we'd have Princess Diana. We'd have, uh, wow. uh, we had the most amazing, we had the, the Ray Patrick and the Buffalo Boys and, and Nick Kamen. And it was, he was friendly with everyone and it was a great crew. So I loved working for him. Uh, I learned a lot about jewelry then, and I would be wearing a lot. It's at that time that I met Hamish, mm. and Hamish in the in in my book he he said that uh, I was the first chic person he met, <laughs> and I think so. You know, there was a contrast between Paris and London, and in Paris, you know, it was quite uh, people would really dress up. Yeah. But in London, they didn't. So uh, I was coming with my French style to London. And you never <laughs> wavered. I mean, you, you stuck with it. I mean, I think probably traveling so much as a child, you were very sure about who you were. No, I think I was not confident. But uh, I, I, um, I believe uh, Bill Cunningham says that uh, fashion is the armor to survive the reality of everyday life. Yeah. And for me, it's something that I do all the time. I think I'm quite, I don't like having attention on myself. Uh, and uh, fashion is my form of expression and it's a form of protection also mm -hmm. so when I was younger I think I would uh, people would not dare to approach me they thought I was very confident I was not confident at all <laughs> but the clothes were like a um, protection but they yeah. say so much about who you are I mean you I I, I fell in love with you the minute I saw you. <laughs> When did we meet her? I with was Lisa through, it was in your Lisa. old apartment um, yeah. right on the Tuileries I fell in love with you too. You were <laughs> so wonderful, uh, such a good style. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I work. So I work for um, Philip. You work for Philip Tracy too. I work for Philip Tracy, which I think is pretty interesting because I think it is. It's that sort of uh, around the face and. Mm. Um, It's, it's sort of similar yeah, to jewelry, really. Sculpture. Yeah. It's very sculpture. Yeah. Um, I, uh, it's when I worked for Philip that I thought I really want to do something that I'm very passionate about. Mm. I would come in in the morning and Philip was, is slightly younger than me and he was just out of the Royal College of Art. But he was already designing, as he was designing for Chanel when he was at the Royal College of Art. Then he was designing for, uh, he did uh, Valentino, Versace. He would do everyone. Mm. And I would come in in the morning and he'd work all night. And he would, I, I would discover the most amazing hats and I just thought I want to be as passionate as him I want to find something so eventually after working with him for maybe a year and a half I decided that I, I, I needed to to uh, 
you know, to take some time off to decide what was what would be my passion. Would it be jewelry? Would it be uh, textile, which is another thing I love, or design? I have a lot of friends in the designer uh, world. And you worked um, with Lucien Pellet Vene, did you? I worked For with Lucien uh, once uh, uh, when uh, when I took my sabbatical. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Lucien is a friend of uh, a friend of was a friend of my uncle, and I met him when I was fourteen in London. In Oh, in, uh, in Paris, in, uh, Paris, in Gascony, he came to oh, stay really? with us in the oh. summer, huh. and uh, and we we got on very well instantly. And he get, he used to send me for for Valentine. He would be he'd send, he would be designing jewelry, yeah. And he sent me some jewelry, and it would be like be my Valentine. And I was fourteen, and you know I don't know, <laughs> he's a bit older than me, but uh, <laughs> we just connected always. And so he helped me at the beginning. Uh, I helped him when he started his brand. He started his brand when he was fifty. And I was really? there, yeah. And I was there to do the selling with him. Yeah. And he thought that he was uh, he didn't have a good color sense because uh, Lucien has an amazing color sense, but everyone, but it's very bright, mm. and everyone has always told him that he had a bad color sense. Hmm. But because um, I think that I mean that's the most beautiful thing about his sweaters. <laughs> exactly. And at first, the first collection was navy, beige, white, and black because he was frightened. Huh. And then eventually it came out of him and he did the most beautiful colors. So I was doing the selling for him. And when I did my first collection, eventually when I decided to uh, actually finally, you know, go for it and uh -huh. m make a, you know, show my creative work, I uh, I showed him the collection and he was the first one to say, I want to show it with my sweaters. Oh, wow. So he invited me to be in his showroom and he used to be staying in this amazing apartment mm -hmm. Rue de Rivoli, mm -hmm. and um, it used to be Madeleine Vionnet's apartment. Wow. And I think, I wonder if Louise de Villemorin, there was a connection with Louise de Villemorin also on that place. So I showed the collection to Barney's, that was in 96, yeah. and my first order was $120,000. Wow. I was so, uh, you know, like I fainted when it came by fax, because at the time <laughs> we were still working with uh, in fax. You decided that you needed to pursue something that you were passionate about, but you didn't know what it was yet. I, I, I mean, I always had a love of jewelry. And if you speak with my sisters, they would tell you yeah. that they always knew I would do jewelry. I wasn't sure if it was going to be jewelry or textile. or I knew I wanted to work in Asia. Yeah. I had been to India in 89 and that, that had left a very strong impression on me. And I had actually f made a, a, a few pieces of jewelry when I was there in 89. I was mm. a jeweler in Jaipur at the time. And uh, and uh, we were supposed to stay in Jaipur just for two days. And in fact, we stayed a week because we I, I love the city. Yeah. And we stayed in the hotel, which is where I live now. Wow. Which is quite, really? a, yeah, it's like a full circle. India for me keeps me on my toes. Yeah because they have a different way of seeing life. And many times it's very surreal. You know, I, I laugh a lot. I mean, when I see before Eid, you, uh, they, they are taking the, the little goats and they're actually taking the goats home on their bicycle. So they're, they're, you know, they're carrying the goats on the handlebars. The first time you sing, you sing like, <laughs> I'm sober today, but why am I seeing everybody <laughs> carrying a, a goat on the bicycle? And this is one of the, you know, it was for Eid. And then eventually you, you learn. But everything, I think life is can be so hard because, of course, uh, many people are, you know, uh, living be below the poverty level that they really, um, uh, and they really celebrate life every day mm -hmm. because they don't know what's happening tomorrow. So that sense of joy is there a lot, and especially in the celebration. So if you've ever been to India for a festival, be uh, Holi or be Diwali, or, mm -hmm. those are very special moments. 
So I fell in love with India, but in, don't forget I grew up in Lebanon. Yeah. And there is this warmth of uh, the Arab country. There's a incredible hospitality, which I, I found very difficult when I moved to Paris because I was so used to yeah. uh, in Beirut, but same in India, you you know, you are, you are with friends and you said, oh, um, you're supposed to go to someone's for dinner. And you said, you know, I've got five friends. Can I bring them? <laughs> In Lebanon, in India, they would say yes. Normal, yeah. In India, it's normal. Yeah. In Paris, you know, it would be like everything would be so. Uh, <laughs> That's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. <laughs> Which is their favorite thing to yeah, say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the French like to say no, 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 no. <laughs> C'est pas possible. C'est pas possible. <laughs> that first time you were there for the week, did you meet Munu there? Or not did you go 89. to visit the gym palace then? Not in 89. I, I met Munu when I, I did my sabbatical and I traveled in, in, in Asia. I traveled in Asia, in Asia to see all the different crafts. So yeah. I spent a lot of time in, I was in uh, Thailand. I was in, I, I, first I started in Japan uh-huh. uh, with Philip Tracy. We yeah. did the first show in Osaka. And then I traveled around uh, the, uh, Asia. I spent a lot of time in Bali, which I love. And, uh, but I, I wasn't excited about the craftsmanship. It's only when I walked into the Gem Palace yeah. uh, in uh, 1996 and I saw the stone cutting room oh. that I thought this is why I, you know, I understood. And Munu was someone who really wanted to, um, uh, to change the vision of jewelry. I mean, even though he was such a brilliant uh, designer of classic Indian jewelry, he wanted to change and uh, make uh, the craftsman evolved. I could see that it was possible and it was interesting for him to do something different. Mm-hmm. And he was already doing something different on his own. And with me, he got excited because the concept of the jewelry was different. And tell me about your life there. How much of the year are you there? And what's it like? I spend about three and a half months of the year uh, there. Not enough. I would love to spend more. Mm-hmm. But um, but my son is in school in Paris, so I yeah. have to share. And I, I live in an amazing old uh, hotel, which is Nord Palace. Mm-hmm. So I start the day with sometimes I have peacock on my terrace, uh, which is so beautiful. Then I go down, uh, I, they have a swimming pool, so I go swimming in the garden and there's going to be monkeys and parrots and and the noise also, there's so many birds in India, I love the noise of the birds. So that's like my piece of the morning. And then uh, I, I go to the workshop and I have this table which is covered in gems and I spend all day and you sit on the floor. Uh, I sit on the floor. We yeah. have a, uh, we work the traditional way. We have mattresses because if the stone fall, you don't want them to break. So we have white mattresses, white sheet. You don't want the color uh, of what's around you to take away from the stone. So everything has to be white. It looks like a, a lab in a way. Yeah. And uh, and I have this table covered of stones. And Munu always used to say that when I was when I was around, I would bring color to the room. Yes. <laughs> because I work with a lot of cold stone, which not everyone does, and it's my passion. And I also remember when I first started doing my jewelry and you know choosing all the stone, he said, you know, but Marie-Hélène, is it really what you want to do? You want to choose every stone? And I was like, yes, this is what I love to do. And it's a very meditative work, mm-hmm. I think. I think you just spend time uh, trying to find one stone which is going to make the next stone more beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's something, there's not an answer because, uh, you know, it's not like when you do puzzle and you've got to find the right piece. It's more like doing a painting. Mm-hmm. So it's something I really, really love uh, doing. I know that you inspire the workers too. I mean, I think that you've probably changed the way they think about things because it's a different way of working. 
I think uh, I challenge them because yeah. I, I, because I don't come from a family of jewelry. Mm-hmm. I don't have preconceived idea of what's possible or not, mm-hmm. and I always I'm always trying to push them to do something different. We um, all the I started with a briolette, and at the time nobody was calling briolette mm-hmm. in a semi-precious stone. It was diamond and emerald and rubies and maybe sapphire, but it, it wasn't heard of. Mm-hmm. And I was also I always loved the Indian technique of drilling stones because yeah. it meant the stone is free. Mm. And I'm quite a free person. <laughs> I always say that my biggest luxury is my freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so so I think the craftsmen they, they enjoy it. Also, I believe in in life if you um, if you're very passionate about something and if you really if it's very important to you, then you pass on this passion to the people around you. Mm-hmm. In Japan, when I did the events, uh, many times I've worked all night on the setup of the exhibition. Yeah. And I think the the craftsmen who were working there, helping, you know, they were, they were amazed, but they were so happy to do it because mm. then it means their work is worth something that people are appreciative. Yeah, I do think India and Japan have such a different reverence for work and craft, craftsmanship than anywhere. Yes, and you have such a huge following in Japan, I know. You have mm. stores there. Yes, I have. So it, it's interesting because in Japan, uh, they have this uh, theory of the, um, uh, the living treasure mm. and they really cherish the craftsmanship. And I think the craftsmen, are, you know, probably do the same piece again and again and they're so rigorous and they believe they become masters when they're much older. In India, they also have amazing craftsmanship, but they don't, um, they love, they're very creative. So sometimes I would get them to do the same piece which I've done all those years and it comes out and it's completely different. And sometimes it's fantastic and sometimes it's a disaster. But I think they have it in them. They are a very, very creative culture and they love decorating everything. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a pleasure, a pleasure for a creative person to work with them because they have an input. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen how they decorate their trucks, they decorate the front of the house, they decorate anything and they like to embellish. Clothes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and that makes it exciting. Well, in Japan, it's more austere, mm-hmm. but it's just more about the perfection of things. Mm-hmm. Perfection, but they believe that, you know, the uh, wabi-sabi concept, that the beauty uh, mm. uh, is in imperfection, and it's something I believe too. Do you have a favorite stone? Oh, this is such a difficult question. I know. It's like children. <laughs> I, I have a few favorite stones. Um, I, I, I have some favorites of yours. <laughs> I suppose the stone that I'm the, the most fascinated with is a tourmaline. Oh, really? Because there is a, in, if you look inside the tourmaline, for me, there is a world. Mm-hmm. It's, it has mm-hmm. amazing inclusion. It can be like little rainbows or glitter. Or, so um, the extreme in the tourmaline would be the Paribas tourmaline, which is a color I love because it's a blue lagoon. And it's a, I want to dive in my, I have a, I'm wearing a Paribas today. It's a, my favorite stone. And I, it's always been, even since childhood, my favorite color. Really? And it's something, uh, it's, you know, the, the way it shines, it's amazing. I want to be, to dive in it. Yeah. So tourmaline is a stone that I'm fascinated just because it's the, the, what's inside, but also because of all the different shades of color. Mm-hmm. It can be the most amazing yellow, it can be a beautiful blue, it can be gray, it can be pink. And the other one, which also has amazing colors, and it's a spinel that we were talking uh, yeah. about. So that there's two stone, but there's a third stone, which I love too, sapphires, like, like you, you do. Yeah. Sapphires, Again, the colors and the quality, I mean, the range, a, yeah, the range, what's inside, the silk, the, it's so beautiful. It is like a whole world, yeah. isn't it? And emerald, I I, emerald, emerald I don't use so much, but for me, the most beautiful stone is emerald. 
so beautiful. so beautiful but it's so rare and so difficult to find and it's but it's really like water and it's a it's a limpid would be the word in French. i mean it's, there's something very it's like a flow but maybe because it's green and green is nature what i love is uh, i don't know if you've i mean I, I, you know you have been wearing my my little parrots i love yes. when i have the craftsman who out of a piece of stone um, makes um, make coming to life uh, an animal. You know, yeah. he's making the parrot, and he makes a squirrel, and he makes a panther, and I find that really amazing. The skill. It's something I would love to know how to do is to actually cut the stone. Yeah. I never did it, but I think eventually one day I will not be so shy and I sit down at the wheel and learn from one of the guys to cut. How did you get Westerners to understand or to appreciate inclusions and the imperfection? I mean, you're the first person I think I've ever seen do that. And I suppose that, that my client could see the beauty that I could see inside it. I think maybe people were discarding them before. But um, um, I don't think anybody ever did that before, though. Before you. I think if you look, uh, I was looking like, for example, at Belle Perron, and I love yeah. her work. And if you look at some of the, even the jewelry that's on the cover, I think it's a big ruby necklace on the cover. Mm -hmm. And the stone are so imperfect. It's oh, just really? A, the taste of the Place Vendôme, which is, you yeah. know, the high jewelry, right. became purer and purer and purer. Uh, the, the jewelers... Um, and I mean, Belle Perron uh, was a woman. Belle Perron was a woman. Yeah. And she was the most talented jeweler. Yeah. And she really influenced everyone in, uh, in, uh, in Place Vendôme. But... You have to remember that okay, uh, the business of jewelry is very dependent on the clientele. We're right. dealing with a, the raw material that's so expensive that you have to design according to your clientele. Yeah. And uh, in the 1920s or uh, 1910, we had the, the Indian would come with their stones. Uh -huh. And if you look at the jewelry of that time or even a bit later, there's amazing jewelry. There's an exhibition now at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs about the marriage of indoor, and he just had some amazing pieces designed. Right. So the, so the stone were included. They didn't mind the inclusion. The stone were beautiful. I think what changed a lot in the jewelry industry was when the, in the 70s, mm -hmm. when the oil money came in from the Arab world. Yeah. And it wasn't so much about the design. It was about the value of the stones. Right. It was, again, a social status. And that's is when, the, if I look at the, you know, the archive of all the big houses of that time, mm -hmm. the jewelry became not so interesting right because the stone had to be perfect but before that they would use stone which were imperfect and they would find a way to use them mm -hmm. so i think i just went back on what we always to, uh, what was always there is use stone use stone for the beauty of them and mm -hmm. not worry about the imperfection i was talking to this friend of mine uh, jill wolf who has um, uh, a beautiful store in geneva and she's a real jewelry person she was i think she she worked at christie's and she worked for some uh, big diamonds, uh, big stone dealer, mm -hmm. and they told the first thing they told her that if there is an um, inclusion, it shouldn't disturb the eye. Mm. So I think there there are inclusion, or distract, yeah, distract. There are inclusion that I will never pass, and some which I find that is actually enhance the stone and make it more beautiful and mm -hmm. more lively. And uh, sometimes I find stone which are too perfect, and for me they're so boring. It's mm -hmm. like beauty. Yeah, you know, you can see a beautiful woman with completely yeah. perfect. But there is no charm, and <laughs> and you you fall out of love really fast when there's something off. Um, it's fascinating, and it's why you become more and more attracted to that. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for the stone. Yeah, 
that, that's why in a way I'm, I'm sad that now that the standard of perfection is so high in beauty because it's everybody looks the same and it's not interesting what's yeah. it's a it's a difference which is makes it interesting it's the imperfection you're here in charlotte tonight we're having a um, supper and with our clients and also to celebrate the launch of your new book golden gems can you tell me about the process and what, what it was like so uh, i felt it was uh, time to do the book because I make a lot of one-off pieces mm. and the one-off pieces uh, get sold very fast and mm. nobody see them. So I thought it would be good for the people who love my work that they have access to pieces they've never seen. Mm. And also um, I felt I've been working designing for what, now over 23 years and I see the younger generation, they, they think that certain things have always existed, but they didn't <laughs> exist. You know, when I started jewelry, there's a lot of things which... Uh, I invented, which have influenced uh, in many ways the jewelry industry. Absolutely, and uh, there are, you know, their the, the origin comes from my work, but nobody knows about it because I'm not, a, I'm a small brand. I don't advertise, so I, I felt it was it was about time to actually show uh, where things came from, and I I was uh, I really wanted the book to put um, things in there in there. Well, I mean, it would be historic historical context because it's only 23 years but I, I did the book in chronological order of mm -hmm. design and I also put the dates uh, of every piece because it's something that when I look at someone's work the be jewelry or be art I want to know when at what time yeah. they were thinking about this this is why when we're talking about Belperon it's someone it's fascinating but you could say that about Charlotte Perriand's work or right. you know there there are people who are so forward thinking mm -hmm. and i think it's always important to put a date to something so uh, so that that's one of the reason i did the book the other one is i i really wanted people uh, to have the 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 courage to do their own passion mm -hmm. and to read my story and to think i can do it too and uh, for me, my greatest achievement is that a few of my assistants have started their own business. Mm -hmm. And it, it means that I, I made them think that it was possible to have run a business as a woman and to manage and mm -hmm. to be successful. And, and that's great. And I think more people need to pursue their passion mm -hmm. because it's so important. We spend most of our uh, time at work and you have to wake up in the morning and you have to be happy to go to work. You've you've pursued your passion. I mean, and yeah. it, you, you feel it when you're in the store. It's a very special store. It's very, the world, it's your world. It's very colorful. It's very happy. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it's making a lot of people happy. Yeah. And that, you know, when, when you share something you love, it brings a lot of happiness. And when you bring harmony to the world too, that, uh, that I think is in, very important. So for, the, for putting the book together, for me, it was like showing that it's possible to do what you want to do. And, you know, you don't have to, um, not everybody can like what you do, but the people who like it, they really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. That you know they are touched by one by someone who's trying to do something different and personal. Well, I, I hope you know also how much joy you've brought to so many people, to me especially. <laughs> you you've you've brought so much beauty and joy into the world. We're so grateful. Thank you. We always ask what the guests wore to the prom, and I don't think they had the prom in Beirut. I'm <laughs> I At the French school, a, maybe they did. I never had a prom. <laughs> I, I remember the first party that I had to go to was my elder sister. I think she had a, a ball on a boat in Paris. And how old was she? Was she 18? 
And we had to wear Laura Ashley. My <laughs> sister and I, I know we were all wearing Laura Ashley. It was in the 70s and I hated those dresses. <laughs> so I don't like them now. <laughs> have, you, have you ever talked to Jane Pendry about it? <laughs> no, but when she came to my house in the country, there, there, there was a, this amazing wallpaper, which was a Laura, a Laura Ashley. Mm. And she was so happy because it was something that she had worked on. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she, was, and she had really pushed them to re-edit it. And when she saw that the whole living room is made with her wallpaper, she was happy. I love but it. those dresses, no, I hated wearing my Do you remember Laura what color? Ashley. No, you hated it. Uh, uh, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite dress? Do I have a favorite? A time the, when you felt most beautiful? No, I suppose it's always the latest one. <laughs> you know, then it, I wish it would that that um, effect of being the favorite dress and make you feel so good would last. Mm. This is one thing I don't understand, and I wish I would uh, be able to make it last longer. But there are some clothes where you feel like you're over the moon. And then, you know, a year later, it just doesn't work. <laughs> and it's a shame because it was a nice feeling. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. Queen City Podcast Network.com. Oh.